It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Well, it's back to the future here in the nation's capital. Yesterday I was in the Washington Bureau. Everybody's now wearing masks again under a mandate, the newly reimposed mandate by the D.C. mayor. It's not that we don't know what to do. We've been through this drill many times. You know, one of the problems with the TV business is you get makeup on and then you put the mask on and then when, in a few hours... Uh, you've kind of ruined the mask and you got to get another mask. I mean, minor first world problems, I know. But more stuff is happening. Uh, Mayor Muriel Bowser ordering now, I guess this takes effect very soon, uh, that if anybody in the District of Columbia wants to walk into a restaurant, a gym, or a number of other businesses, they have to show a vaccination card. And some other big cities have done that. Washington is joining as well. Uh, some of the suburbs here heading in the same direction. And, of course, the debate will continue about whether that's an overreaction, whether it's actually a common-sense reaction to the Omicron surge. I'll have a lot more on the podcast. I've got some really useful information for you. I think we're at an important point in the debate here, almost an inflection point about how we deal with the rest of this pandemic, however long it lasts. But first, I want to give you this not-so-breaking news. But TikTok has actually displaced Google as the most popular domain on the web in 2021, according to a site called Protocol. Um, Pretty amazing. Last year, TikTok was number seven, Google number one. You'd expect Google to be number one. All these zillions of people doing searches. This year, TikTok won, followed by Google and Facebook and Microsoft and Apple in that order. Now, I would wager that a couple years ago, most Americans either hadn't heard of TikTok or really weren't quite sure what it was, unless you had teenage girls. If you had teenage girls, you knew exactly what TikTok was. And it's actually a kind of a brilliant thing in the sense that, you know, all the users provide the content and there's a lot of singing and dancing and comedy routines and satire and uh, people can do anything, cooking lessons, juggle uh, through short videos. Uh, Interesting point made by this particular piece that TikTok's popularity shows how much people trust it. Look, Google, you know, had long been the sort of go-to site for fact-checking stuff, as well as searching for anything you need. But people may be increasingly willing to take the word of others on TikTok without any outside verification. Now, TikTok has added some fact-checking mechanisms, banners on unverified TikToks or flagging misleading content. Uh, content. But I do think it's remarkable. And of course, you know, it's owned, the parent company is owned by China. Uh, President Trump came with an eyelash of banning it in his final months in office because of national security concerns. That seems to have receded and now TikTok rules. And by the way, other parts, uh, other websites now are going to be moving in the direction of doing, uh, including, uh, uh, you know, Google, I guess, doing more video, more audio, as people are more interested, apparently, in seeing and hearing things on the web as opposed to just reading large blocks of texts. Uh, I try to provide both, right? I write columns, but I also post my videos. And uh, and then there's a podcast for those of you who like audio. You can go around and do whatever you want while you're doing it. All right, number one. I don't know whether the bigger news here is that President Biden gave an interview to a television journalist, who's not Jimmy Fallon, or what he said in the interview. But the president doing a kind of a year-end sit-down with ABC's David Muir. 
Um, and the, I think the headline coming out of this is naturally, you know, Muir asked him a lot about the virus and so forth and um, other issues, but eventually got around to the 2024 question, will you run again? And of course, the president has maintained that. Of course, we would all be falling off our chairs if he gave any other answer. And um, Biden said this time, it's interesting the way he phrased it. Uh, yes, but look, I'm a great respecter of fate. If I'm in the health I'm in now, if I'm in good health, then in fact, I would run again. So look, that actually is a very sensible thing for a 79-year-old president to say. Who knows what kind of a health he'll be in, in, in at the age of 82. And I'm not just talking about all the people who say, you know, he's mentally addled and so forth. Um, he, he has a range, you know, he can do a, an hour and a half town hall and has a great command of the facts of detailed legislative and regulatory programs. And then, you know, he'll stumble over his words and people say, oh, he's losing it. But there's also the question of uh, any physical ailments beyond that. Right now, the president doesn't seem to have that. So he's just, it's a, it's a bow to what we all know to be the reality, if I'm good help. But then came this question. What, says Muir, if the Republican nominee was Donald Trump? And Biden tried to turn it into a joke. He said, you're trying to tempt me now. Sure, why would I not run against Donald Trump if he were the nominee? That would increase the prospect of running. I have a feeling we may be hearing from the former president sooner rather than later on that answer. Okay, number two. Uh, I'm going to spend a lot of time here on all this new both information and debate about Omicron. By the way, I watched these numbers creep up. You know, the, the average number of new daily cases had been 120,000 for quite a while, then 140, 150. Now it's just short of 170,000, the number of daily deaths in America creeping up to over 1,300 a day from about 1,000. Now, let's get to the testing business. Um, you know, I've been extremely critical of the president. And, you, and, you, and he was extremely critical, as I'll get to, of Donald Trump for not making more uh, tests available. This is an absolutely crucial thing where, um, you, you know, you want to go visit your aunt in Florida this Christmas, but you want to make sure you're not bringing the virus. You want to get a test, and you can't get the test. The pharmacies are sold out. The appointments are backed up. It is just a colossal failure. So the speech that the president gave the other day, 500 million new coronavirus tests available free of charge. But as the New York Times points out, that is weeks away, if not longer. So it doesn't help us in the holidays at all. Uh, the administration has not even signed a contract to buy the tests. The website to order these uh, coronavirus tests won't be up until January. Nobody is saying how many tests people will be able to order, how quickly they will be shipped. Um, it's going to be well into January. And by the way, the 500 million is not all going to be available at once. It will be stretched out over a period of months. And here's the paragraph I was thinking of. When he was running for president, Biden just absolutely blistered the Trump administration, saying in March 2020, the administration's failure on testing is colossal. And it's a failure of planning, leadership, and execution. But the Omicron variant caught the White House off guard, as the president has acknowledged, and cases have far outstripped the government's ability to make tests available. Uh, here's an epidemiologist named Jennifer Nuzzo from the John Hopkins uh, Public Health School. That's not a plan. It's a hope, she said. 
If those tests came in in January, February, that can have an impact. But if they're spread over 10 to 12 months, I'm not sure what impact it's going to have. Uh, now, one of the companies that makes these at-home tests, Abbott Laboratories, says unprecedented demand. We're sending as fast as we can. They are running the factories around the clock trying to hire new workers. Now, in the ABC interview, David Muir asked him, as, as the president was asked at a news conference uh, on Tuesday, isn't this a failure on your part? And he said, no, it's not a failure. But then Biden said this. I think you could argue that we should have known a year ago, six months ago, two months ago, a month ago. You think? Yeah. I mean, so he, actually he's admitting without using the word that it is a failure. Of course there were going to be more variants. Of course there were going to be peaks and valleys and surges. You don't wait until the house is on fire to go out and try to get a bunch of uh, equipment and hoses to put it out. You buy the equipment and hoses before the fires break out. Forest fire, house fire, you name it. And if you end up buying too many, well, that's part of the price of government. You just sit on them and you hope it's not needed in case of disaster. It's like planning for hurricanes or tsunamis. You can't, if you wait, you're lost. Now, a lot of people are, there's, there's news out of South Africa. Here's a Washington Post story on this saying that was the first place, as you recall, that we even heard the word Omicron. And so this huge wave, you look at a chart, it just zooms right up, almost like in a vertical line, of Omicron cases in South Africa now appears, as of this week, to be subsiding as quickly as it grew. In what? I guess it's about four, five, or six weeks. Uh, a study in South Africa found that the Omicron variant was 80% less likely to lead to hospitalization than the Delta variant. And for patients who were hospitalized, the risk of severe illness, 30% lower. So that's all great. And makes, it makes you feel like, well, these are going to be mild cases. But there's always a but in these things. And here's the but, according to this story. There are, there are demographic details about South Africa that may not apply to the United States or the rest of the world, which is probably, according to officials there, 70% of South Africans had already been infected by previous variants of COVID-19. So more of the population already had the antibodies because so many people had gotten it. That's not the case here. A lot of people have gotten it in America, obviously, but not 70%. So the idea that there will be a very rapid spike and then come down and by the end of January we'll be done with this, I mean, I hope that's the case, but we can't just assume that because it was true in South Africa that it would be true here. By the way, I also read a story today um, about Britain, which has widespread availability of low-cost tests. But the trick there is when, it, when a variant or a virus comes on really quickly, the test is only a snapshot. And if it, if test is taken... Right when you get it, but before you have symptoms, the test may miss it. Uh, but then, you know, the next day you could be pretty sick and you could spread it. If the test is taken at the end of your infection period, uh, it may miss it. And so even tests are not a panacea, but at least it's a tool that we can use. Okay, here's a piece in The Atlantic, which has many, which I often quote on the coronavirus because it does so much of the coverage. The author says, it feels like everyone I know has COVID. Thankfully, everyone has mild symptoms. We could be in for a few months of relatively mild inconvenience before Omicron goes out with a whimper or, you know, to be sure, we could be about to experience yet another exponential rise in hospitalizations and deaths. 
But I wager, says the Atlantic author, whatever course Omicron takes, we're about to experience the end of the pandemic as a social phenomenon. The battles over masks and mandates uh, obscure the extent to which the field of battle has shifted. Well, what does the Atlantic mean by that? Few pundits right now, this is true, it's not March of 2020, are proposing, or politicians, are proposing strict measures to slow the virus's spread. The appetite for shutdowns or other large-scale interventions simply isn't there. You know, that means we've given up on, remember, slowing the spread or flattening the curve. To a, to a greater degree than during previous waves, says this piece, we've decided to throw up our hands. The goal now is to help us cope with a surge of cases, not prevent one from happening in the first place. Well, that is a result of a couple of things. We've been through a, a nationwide lockdown and it torpedoed the economy. Nobody wants to go through that again. Secondly, we have vaccines now that do we not have available in March of 2020, and even though a large chunk of the country, and by the way, Donald Trump, who said he got the booster with O'Reilly, uh, was doing an interview with the Daily Wire and, and talking up, you know, he says, well, yeah, if you're vaccinated and you get the virus, um, it's not as severe. I hope the former president keeps talking about that because a lot of the people who are not getting these shots are fans of Donald Trump. They are followers of Donald Trump. Anyway, The Atlantic says if the goal had once been to stop an emergency from arising, serious restrictions like shutdowns are now thinkable only if we get into a situation in which the emergency is already plain for all to see. Um, what will the new normal mean? Will people ignore COVID even as it continues to kill hundreds of thousands of people every year? Um, and then you end up with, well, it sort of depends what happens. But I do think we are thinking about it in different ways. And that dovetails into this piece in National Review, which says, as the Omicron variant rips through parts of the U.S., with among the highest vaccination rates in the world, still not high enough in my view, it should be abundantly clear, says the magazine, we will not be able to end COVID, end in sort of air quotes, but we still have the power to end the COVID zero mentality. And this is interesting. The magazine designs the COVID zero mindset as an overriding belief that there's some ideal combination of, you know, government restrictions and rules and personal behavior changes that will enable us, as Biden once said, to shut down the virus. And it's always been this sort of like, it's just around the corner. If we could just get over this one hump, COVID madness would be over. But yeah, it does. it's just true. You get to every hump and there's another hump on the horizon. And another one, you know, there's another wave, there's another variant. More people get vaccinated, but it's never quite enough. Um, and, you know, we ended up what was going to be a six-week lockdown, ended up dragging on for months. Uh, kids were thrown out of schools for months. All of that has happened. Um, and even Biden said, look, we don't want to shut down. There's no reason to close schools. Then, in the opinion of National Review, Biden went off to talk about, you know, we've got to get more of these vaccines. And National Review is not anti-vax by any means. Oh, and Biden said that school kids should continue to mask up. This is a growing debate about whether that is making sense. Here's the kicker. The fact that COVID will always be with us should not freak people out, but sober them up. Back in March of 2020, the rationale was that reckless individual behavior could have catastrophic consequences for the most vulnerable among us. Uh, now, whatever you think about the efficiency of the rules that were put in place then, 
by President Biden's own admission, we're in a much different place now that so many have been vaccinated. So we should act like it. And I think that view, you know, and this is the view as espoused in a conservative magazine, but I've seen people who are not conservatives start to say, hey, we got to get realistic here. Uh, the virus is going to be with us in some form for a long time to come. Maybe we've got to regularly get shots. We, you can't get to zero. But what you can do, and again, this does require more people to get vaccinated, is to reduce the risk so that if you get it, there are predictions that a whole lot of people uh, who previously felt protected, people who've been triple vax, so to speak, are going to get Omicron because it evades many of these vaccine defenses. But, and that's terrible, you know, nobody wants to get it, but if the symptoms are relatively mild, if you're not going to the hospital, if you're not facing the prospect of dying, that's a different risk level than we faced during most of 2020 when we had no vaccines for this deadly disease on the market. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzMeter coming your way in just a moment. Let me move on now to number three. New York Times, major, major, major piece on Kamala Harris. Now, it, it plows a lot of the same ground that you've heard me talk about on the podcast and on the air about, you know, what a terrible situation she's in. But it's a little bit more from her point of view as opposed to, man, is she screwing up? I mean, it starts out where Biden's going to talk to Manchin, trying to get the big spending bill through, and Kamala comes by and just says a quick hello, but he doesn't really use her on this because she wasn't in the Senate long enough to have you know deep relationships with a lot of the lawmakers that Biden needs now to pass this bill and presumably other legislation. Uh, you know, she was a California senator for what, two years? He was in the Senate for 36 years. He knows all the people except for those, I guess, who were elected but, of course, then he was vice president for eight years. He knows just about everybody. Anyway, without a headlining role, says the Times, in most of the critical decisions facing the White House, the vice president is caught between criticism that she is falling short and resentment among supporters who feel she's being undercut by the administration she serves. Her allies are concerned that while Biden relied on her to help him win the White House, he does not need her to govern. And, you know, it states the obvious, you know, Kamala Harris was picked because having a black woman on the ticket really helped shore up candidate Biden's support with the coalition, in this case women, in this case minorities, that he needed to win the presidency. But according to interviews of more than two dozen White House officials, political allies and so forth, former aides, she is struggling to define herself in the Biden White House and battling a perception that she and her aides think is unfair, that she's adrift in the job. And one of the things I've said is she should get out there and do more interviews and not just talk to Charlemagne the God. And I've also said I don't know whether she has the leeway to do that or not. She's not great in these interviews if she really gets pressed, but if she got more practice, she could lift her game. Uh, one bit of uh, nugget of news in this story is that uh, Kamala has been consulting with various uh, prominent women in public life, including Hillary Clinton, to try to help her figure out what to do next. She's privately said that the news coverage of her would be very different if she were like every any one of her 48 predecessors, which is to say a white man. So she's buying into the racist and sexist indictment. And I can't say there's nothing to that that she certainly gets more scrutiny because of it. But, you know, if Biden were using her differently, if she was out there, if she had one or two major issues that she could have some impact as opposed to the border, um, maybe it would be playing differently. 
But here's a couple of examples. Um, Manchin may be ticked off at her, according to the story, because she gave some interviews in West Virginia uh, that he saw as an unwelcome infringement on his home turf. Here's another example involving the border. Democratic Congressman Henry Cuellar, he's a relatively moderate Democrat from Texas, and a big voice in the party on border issues, said that when he heard that Kamala Harris, remember when she finally was kind of pressured by the press and political conventional wisdom to go to the border. She kept saying, I don't need to go in and to go, okay, I'm going. He had his staff call her office to offer to help and to offer advice for her visit. Never got a call back. I say this very respectfully to her. I moved on, Cuellar says. She was tasked with that job. It doesn't look like she's very interested in this. So we are going to move on to other folks that work on the issue. He says, at least when you try the White House, at least they talk to you. Now that's just you know, political malpractice. You know, key congressman from the area, you're going there, friendly Democrat, wants to help out. Even if you don't really need his help, you call the guy back. You put the vice president on the phone, you arrange for meeting, whatever. You don't blow them off. And that suggests that her staff has not served her well. Obviously, several people, including you know, high-ranking communications director, are leaving. Um, so, So what did Hillary have to say? Well, Hillary spoke to the New York Times, Hillary Clinton, saying there is a double standard and it's sadly alive and well. A lot of what is being used to judge her, just like it was to judge me or the women who ran in 2020 or everybody else, is really colored by that. They speak every few months on the phone. Hillary went to see her in the West Wing in November, last month. Um, Okay, look, one can see where Hillary Clinton would say this. I would also suggest that you can't spend the rest of her tenure saying, hey, she's being beaten up unfairly because she's the first black vice president, because she's the first female vice president, because she's the first vice president of Asian descent. At some point, you've got to take responsibility for your own political image, reputation, persona, and you need the backing of the president to do this, if you're the number two, start to turn things around. So we'll see whether there's a new strategy for Kamala Harris in twenty. 22. All right, number four, The Hollywood Reporter has this fascinating piece about, uh, I guess I'd put it this way, stop the presses, Uh, the rich and celebrities are being inconvenienced by crime in L.A. Okay, so this piece starts out by saying, private security contractors report that a string of high-profile retail robberies and home burglaries in upscale L.A. neighborhoods has caused a dramatic uptick. Those two words don't really go together. Dramatic and uptick. Dramatic surge, dramatic uh, increase, dramatic uptick in requests for their services and prompted many of their wealthy clients to change their routines out of a mix of caution and fear. Now, I don't want to denigrate or diminish in any way. You know, you've got in, in the L.A. area, in San Francisco, you've got these broad daylight robberies in prominent stores, smash and grab, and it's serious stuff. It can suggest that, you know, Law and order is just out of control in these areas of California. But anyway, the piece is more interested in the following. Uh, Recent high-profile crimes involving the entertainment community, well, you know, the people who would read Hollywood Reporter, involve a robbery at the Encino home of Real Housewives of Beverly Hills star Dorit Kemsley. Can't say that I watch Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, but I'm sure it's very big in that demographic. She lost or was stolen from her $1 million worth of luxury handbags, jewelry, watches, and other goods. 
I don't know. Would it be churlish of me to suggest that keeping a million dollars worth of luxury goods in your house is maybe not the best strategy? Uh, also, uh, actor and former BET host Terrence Jenkins escaped a robbery attempt by a masked crew uh, near his home in uh, Sherman Oaks, which is in the Valley. Then Hollywood was shaken by the fatal shooting. This is awful. 81-year-old philanthropist Jacqueline Avant, the wife of legendary music exec Clarence Avant, and the mother-in-law of Netflix chief Ted Sarandos, during an attempted burglary, I hadn't heard about this one, at her Trousdale Estates home on December 1st. The perpetrator charged with murder was recently paroled from state prison. Well, that was a great move, huh? High-profile heists have also occurred in the Fairfax District. I guess that's a pretty Tony part of L.A. Uh, Suspects in police-like uniforms followed victims from a restaurant. Two men robbed a mother with her baby. Armed robbers crashed a holiday party in Pacific Palisades. That is a very upscale uh, area just adjacent to Santa Monica. To strip revelers of jewelry, iPhones, and an Apple Watch. Um, a couple of weeks ago, thieves heisted, I know that was a verb, about 100,000 worth of, of jewelry and goods from guests held at gunpoint outside the Intercontinental Los Angeles downtown hotel. And then there was a man arrested just uh, three days ago for attempting to burglarize a mansion in Bel Air. Now, when you get to the raw numbers from the LAPD, they're not that dramatic. Uh, burglary and car theft up slightly, 3.7% from last year but down 5.8% from 2019. Violent crime up 6.2% this year um, and 4.4% compared to 2019. Robbery up 5.2% from this time last year. Well, those are not encouraging numbers, but the reason this is a story and the reason probably I'm reading it to you is because of, you know, and I, you know, I have great sympathy for them just because you're rich doesn't mean... You, it isn't a horrifying experience to be carjacked or have your house burglarized and so forth. But the fact that it's uh, affecting people who can't afford then to hire private security guards. I've read about um, groups of neighbors out there um, chipping in together to get private security contr- uh, patrols. Obviously, most Americans cannot afford to do that. Uh, but it just goes to show you that nobody is immune when it reaches this level of breakdown in terms of crime. And you know, it's certainly in San Francisco where the mayor of London Breed has said, has used the word bull to say that, you know, enough of this defund the police garbage, you know, we're gonna crack down on crime about time uh, in San Francisco. Um, but the economy is pretty good right now. Yes, you know, some people are suffering because of the coronavirus. So it's not like, you know, oftentimes crime goes up when people are desperate. Um, I'd like to know a lot more about uh, how this happened. But, you know, it's just like when there are the wildfires and then they reach Malibu and certain, you know, famous and rich celebrities lose their homes. You know, it's tragic. I feel sorry for anybody that happens. But that tends to get a lot more attention than just sort of average people who are in the path of these terrible wildfires, which seem to be getting worse, by the way. And a lot of people blame climate change. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. All right, let's finish up here with number five, Elon Musk. I've talked about Elon Musk a lot in the last two weeks. I guess that's in part because he was Time's Person of the Year. And as I've mentioned, you win that, you get a pretty tough piece if you're Elon Musk. Uh, And he's just an interesting guy. I mean, think about this. 
He is the world's richest man. Tesla makes a lot of news. SpaceX makes a lot of news. Not all of it favorable. And yet, despite the fact that he's this zillionaire with these successful companies, uh, now really a global celebrity, he says things that other people don't say. He goes on Twitter and he's very entertaining. Sometimes people are not entertained. You know, he got into this spat with Elizabeth Warren where she hit him on not paying enough taxes and he called her Senator Karen. You know, maybe you like that, maybe you don't like that, but he doesn't He doesn't seem to have a filter. I know he has said that he has uh, Asperger's. So he did an interview with the Babylon Bee satirical site in which he said the following things. Generally, I think we should be aiming for a positive society and it should be okay to be humorous. Wokeness basically wants to make comedy illegal, which is not cool. Now, that might be a slight exaggeration, but basically he's saying political correctness and wokeness uh, has gone too far. And I don't know, you just take a step back. I mean, yeah, Donald Trump used to comment on everything under the sun. This is Elon Musk. He does not need to do this. He could just make money, send rockets into space, uh, and make more electric cars. But he, I guess he's kind of enjoying the spotlight. Anyway, he goes on to say, you know, there was that whole huge flap over uh, Dave Chappelle and his Netflix special, making comments that offended the LGBTQ community, although Netflix stood by Chappelle. I mean, Chappelle, Musk says, Musk says, what the F? Trying to shut down Chappelle? Come on, man, that's crazy. And this, this really caught my eye. Do we want a humorless society that is simply rife with condemnation and hate? At its heart, wokeness is divisive, exclusionary, and hateful. And he says that those who try to cancel others aren't doing it for the right reasons. It basically gives people a shield to be mean and cruel, armored in false virtue. These are pretty um, illuminating observations. You may agree, you may not agree, but I got to say, Elon Musk, I mean, you don't see Mark Zuckerberg giving interviews like that. I mean, most of these corporate CEOs are really, really cautious. They just want to make, they just want to get traffic for their websites or sell products on Amazon. You don't see Jeff Bezos giving interviews like that. Maybe they just don't think this way. And he gets himself into trouble time and time and time again. He got himself into trouble with the SEC for tweeting about Tesla stock in a way that is kind of illegal. But he remains, I think, probably the most fascinating character in the corporate world. And uh, I would say the most interesting personality for a world's richest dude that we've seen in a very long time, certainly in the age of social media. Well, once again, glad you're along for the ride. You can get this podcast on your Amazon device or at Apple iTunes or lots of other places. Uh, Tomorrow's Christmas Eve. Maybe we'll do a short one, but I do plan to be back. And we'll talk to you then with more BuzzMeter. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.